All right, kids ages 3 to pre-K can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship. The rest of you can open, uh, if you have a Bible with you, you can open it to the book of 1 John. It's in the New Testament in the back. So if you go to the last book in the New Testament, that is Revelation. And then you go to your left, you'll find Jude, 3 John, 2 John, and surprise, surprise, 1 John. So um, if you want to turn there, that's great. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, it's, the text is in your bulletin. It's in your order of worship. If you don't own a Bible, uh, we've got a bunch of them on the back table, the connect table in the back. We'd love for you to grab one of those. You don't have to do that now. That may be awkward for you, so don't worry about that. But at some point, we'd love for you to do that because we, we want you to have God's Word in your hand at some point. Okay. So, as you're turning there, let me remind us what we're doing. We are about to move into the final chapter of this little letter. We've been working through it since January, and we're about to move into the final chapter. Uh, we're going to be wrapping up this book at the end of May, which happens to coincide with when my sabbatical will start, so we're, we're, we'll finish this out. Um, last week, if you were here, you'll remember that John sought to help us discern our place in the faith via love, via like how we're doing when it comes to love. Remember that? That's the notion that love should characterize our lives as Christians, and the kind of love that should characterize our lives as Christians is Uh, true love, love that is intentionally and unilaterally seeking the flourishing of another, even at cost to ourselves. And that John said that the only way that that can happen is through the work of God in us. That's not natural. That's not natural to us, right? That was a serious test. It was a hard one, in fact. But now he continues that, but also helps us find confidence before God. So if you have your place, we're in John chapter 4. If you'd stand, that's our habit here, in honor of God's word. We're going to be reading verses 13 through 21. As we do that, let me remind us of something. This is God's word. This is not ours. This is not something that we picked for ourselves or something that the church decided at some point, let's go with these letters and not something else. It is the place in which the sheep hear the shepherd's voice. And so our confession teaches us we are to add faith and love to the hearing of it that it might become effectual for us, that it might actually do what God intended it to do. So let's, let's do that now. This is God's Word. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. It's God's word for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Uh, God, no matter where we're at in this place, we all need the same thing. We need the gospel to work in our lives. And so we ask that you would open our eyes. We could see you, our ears to hear you, our hearts to receive you. You would speak peace to us. Not in in a, not a false peace which denies 
uh, what we've done, but in fact the peace of the gospel that fully bears it. Be near to us, O Lord. By your Spirit, would you come and move in this, in this congregation, Lord, so that we might have confidence, not in ourselves, but only and fully in you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. So, a couple of weeks ago, I was approached at a uh, local restaurant that, that I frequent to do reading and stuff like that. I was approached by a Jehovah's Witness. Uh, perhaps you're not familiar with um, Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, for those of you who aren't, they, they kind of reflect the belief of an early Christian heresy called Arianism, uh, which, is, which is to say that they claim that Jesus is not God. Great dude, really powerful, mega creature. Way better than us, but not God. Okay, um, And because that is a central difference between Christianity and the beliefs of Jehovah's Witnesses, that is often the place that Christians mistakenly think that they need to fight the battle with them on. right? And so they'll engage and have all these proofs for the deity of Jesus. Here's a, here's a little um, hint. Uh, they don't care. They don't care. Uh, frankly, it's, is, it, is it a central difference? It's absolutely a central difference. And they don't care. Uh, they, th- th- those folks have had uh, years of teaching on why, uh, why evangelical Christians, why Christianity in general uh, believes that and why they don't, blah, blah, blah. Um, I've actually found that a better place to engage and one that will actually lead to gospel conversations is on, not on the issue of the deity of Jesus. It's on the issue of assurance. It's on the issue of confidence. Because that notion is scandalous to them. To say that you know for certain that you will spend eternity in the presence of God is scandalous and presumptuous. But listen, they're not the only ones for whom that's an issue. Maybe for you this morning, you you came into this place and you came because somebody promised you lunch afterwards. And here you are, right? And you're like... The fact that I can say that, that you can, in fact, have that kind of assurance and confidence before the, the throne of God, uh, that you will be able to spend eternity with Him, that that sounds arrogant and, and, frankly, confirms what you've always thought about Christians. Now, the reason for that, my guess would be, the reason for that is that um, you might be a little confused on where exactly we would place that confidence. Because most people think that the reason that Christians are so confident in that is because they're so self-righteous. And they think of themselves so great. Well, John moves us in a direction this morning uh, that's a little different than that. And so we're going to look at where, we're going to look at two things this morning that you're going to find in your bulletin. There's a little outline if that's helpful for you. If you're new to Presbyterianism, that is how uh, we do amens in Presbyterianism. We scribble on our outline. Um, it's very dissatisfying for the preacher, but it works. So uh, we're going to be looking at two things this morning. We're going to look at where confidence comes from and, uh, and, and what it accomplishes. Okay? Where it comes from and what it accomplishes. And what we're going to see is this. We're going to see ultimately that our confidence comes in what God has done and what he is doing in us. Okay? What God has done and what he is doing in us. So let's start with where it comes from. Uh, look at those first three verses, if you will. John says this, By this we know, we abide in him, that's God, and he in us. Okay, now stop there really quick. If you've been there, over, if you've been here over the course of this trip through 1 John, you've heard this kind of language a bunch, right? Because John's whole point in this letter is to help us to know something. Not to guess, not to assume, but to know. To know for certain. 
And this tells us right off the bat, as we think about that, that this knowledge, this assurance that he's trying to help us wrestle with is, is, is something that John thinks is both important and normal for the Christian. Okay, so let's keep going. He says, we know we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. All right. Now, if, if you're an outliner, if you're a diagrammer, if you're someone who's like, I want to piece out where this is going, this line is his central thesis. We know, we know that he abides in us and us in him because he has given us of his spirit. We can have certainty, we can have confidence in our place in Jesus because we have the spirit of God. But that begs the question though, right? I mean, how do you know? He seems, to, he seems to assume we get it, but how do we know? How do we know that we actually do have the Spirit? Is it kind of like a, a warm fuzzy? You know, like I feel good right in this region, so therefore I must have the Spirit? Is it like a, some kind of mystical experience? We kind of transcend for a moment? We're brought to tears in the middle of something? Like, what, what is it? How do you know? Well, the first way, he says, as he breaks this down, is because of faith. Look down at verses 14 and 15. He says, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So he's just said that we know that we abide in him and he in God if, because we have the Spirit. And now he's used that same language to deal with this profession. Okay, So this is pretty big, but probably not what you thought. John has just said... That being able to truly profess faith in Jesus is a sign that the Spirit is in you. This confession that John is talking about is the central Christian confession. It is the gospel. Okay, So let me, let me break it down. To say that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, is to confess something very unique among all religions. And maybe this is new to you. You've never heard this. So, so listen in really close, because this is really, really key. Christianity declares that everyone in the world, not just a few people, not just the, the ones that we would look at and go, oh, those kind of people, but everyone in the world is stuck in this state called sin. That sin isn't primarily what we do. It's fundamentally who we are. And who we are then leads to what we do. It says that that happens because we broke relationship with God by wanting to be independent of Him, wanting to call our own shots, wanting to seek a status or a satisfaction apart from Him. Now, some of us are more prone to do that in more religious, moralistic ways, right? My guess would be that's, that's a good bit of us in this room. Others of us, though, are more prone to do that in very irreligious, very secularized ways, very, very, uh, maybe even immoral ways, at least traditionally, right? But all of us do it. God wasn't content with that, though, and he promised to make things right, and so he came in Jesus to deal with our sin. He came to live the life we couldn't, to die the death we, we could never or dare not to die, and then, and then to do all of this in our place. And so when John says, Savior of the world, what he means is that Jesus came to rescue not just one group of people, one group of nice people over here, but all groups of people. In other words, there is no other Savior apart from Him. There is no other way to be reconciled to God except through Jesus. And, and so here's the major difference between Christianity and everything else. And I cannot say this enough. Christianity calls us to put our faith in a Savior, not in a system. It calls us to put our faith in a Savior and not in a system. In other words, not in something to do. Not in a set of rules, but in a ruler. And so Jesus didn't didn't come to help us see how to save ourselves. Jesus came to save. 
huge difference. Now, of course, that's, off- that's pretty offensive, right? I mean, of course it is. It, it strikes against our pride because what that tells us is that you and I can't do this on our own. We can't make things right with God on our own. We need help from outside of ourselves, and that has to come from Jesus. But it also says that Jesus is the Savior of the world, which means that this gift is not restricted to one group, one race, one gender, one whatever. He is the only Savior. But he saves all kinds of people. Now, listen, because this is key to John's point. We know we have the Spirit if we believe this. This means... This means that believing the gospel is not something you can do apart from the work of the Spirit of God in you. Okay, If you're a Christian in the room this morning, let me be clear. You don't believe what you do because you got your stuff together and your friends and neighbors didn't. Right? You believe what you believe because the Spirit abides in you. This is what Paul is talking about when he says in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 that no one can confess Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit of God. This is what he means when he's talking about 1 Corinthians 2 when he says um, that the, the, the things of the Spirit are not understandable to natural people. If the Spirit is not working in you, you can't understand it. And this is what Jesus means when he tells Nicodemus, you can't even see or understand the kingdom of God, better yet, enter it, without the Spirit making you to be born again. God gives not just salvation, but even faith as a gift. So that's the first sign, is faith. The second sign of the Spirit is love, though. Look down at verses 16 and 17. And this connects to what we talked about last week, if you were here. John says, so we've come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God. God abides in him. Okay? Now, uh, we talked about this last week, so I don't want to belabor it. The kind of love that the Bible says is, is to be shown by a Christian is also not natural. In other words, it doesn't just, it's not something that we just kind of come up with. It's not normal for us. And, and if, if you want to hear more about that, like I said, go, go look at, listen to our podcast because I don't want to belabor that point. Um, but, but it is important. And what that means is that loving like this is a sign of the Spirit indwelling us. John's argument is that since this kind of love finds its source, its only source in God, God is love, right? Because it finds its source only in God, For you and I to reflect that kind of love, we have to be in God. Does that make sense? You with me? And so he continues. He says, by this love is perfected in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Okay. Now, let me take that last part first. The notion of judgment is very difficult for many of us. Right? Because what judgment says, um, you know... Judgment says is that we are accountable to another. And many of us in this room, as soon as I say the word judgment, are like, Rick, this is what I hate about Christians. All y'all talk about is judgment. All y'all talk about is angry gods and blah, blah, blah. Okay? Listen, I know it's hard. Uh, I told you the gospel's offensive, and it is. The notion of judgment uh, ultimately is most difficult because it says we are accountable to another. And the first thing that we begin to do when we think about being accountable to another is we begin to bargain. We begin to mitigate, right? What is it that we have to do? 
But look at what else he says here. He says this phrase, love perfected in us. And this phrase, love perfected in us, is very confusing because of the way we use the word perfect. In the original, uh, some of you may not know, the Bible was not written in English. It was actually written, uh, the New Testament was written for the first time in Greek. Um, That word that we translate perfected is the word uh, telos, which means um, that which finds its goal. In other words, it's not so much talking about perfection as it is the goal. Something that's being completed. So follow me here, because here's what he means. The love of God, demonstrated in the coming of Jesus, was not simply to get you saved. It was to make you new. The love of God in sending Jesus, that's demonstrated in the sending of Jesus, was not, did not happen just to get you saved, but to make you new. And so when he says, by this Love finds its goal. What he means is that the love of God expressed in the redemption that is accomplished by Christ and applied by the Spirit shapes us into those who want to show that same kind of love to others. Okay? But again, his point is that the presence of this kind of love is not something that you and I can just kind of work up. We can't just kind of uh, create it. It's something that only the Spirit of God working in us by the gospel of Jesus can accomplish. In other words, what gives us confidence on the day of judgment is not that you and I loved well. If that's where you're hoping your confidence is, can I just tell you straight up, you don't. Because you're already thinking more about yourself than others. It's not, our confidence is not in the fact that we loved well. It is that this love, the loving well, is a sign that we have actually been joined to Christ. Listen to me. Your confidence before God cannot be in you. It cannot. It can only be in Jesus. Love is not the basis of the confidence. It is the sign of the Spirit's presence in your life. And the Spirit's presence in your life is the basis of For the confidence, because the Spirit applies the work of Jesus to us for our redemption. Okay? Now, that should raise the question for us where is your confidence? Now, don't answer too quickly, uh, because for some of us, what what we think is confidence isn't confidence at all, it's presumption. Right? It's presumption. You know, maybe we believe that uh, God's love for us is found in him being cool with us believing whatever we want and doing whatever we want because we think that love is basically letting people do whatever they want. If that's you this morning, John is saying that the presence of the Spirit results in believing the gospel. You cannot claim to be a Christian and not confess that Jesus is the only Savior of the world. He isn't a savior. He isn't just my savior or your savior. He is the savior. And if your confidence is not in him, there's no confidence. The great news is that if you find yourself, if you find yourself this morning, I just said that and you're like, what? But you're going, but that kind of makes sense. If you find yourself believing that even for the first time right now, That is a sign that the Spirit of God is working in you. You can't believe this on your own. Like I said, Paul tells us, you can't make this profession. Jesus is Lord apart from the Spirit of God. And so, you know, maybe like Peter, you're confused by Jesus, right? 
I think we tend to think because we haven't, we probably haven't read the Bible closely enough that the disciples of Jesus were always like, were just kind of cool with everything Jesus did. Let me tell you a little story, uh, really quick. That Jesus in um, John chapter six had the worst day of preaching ever. So he he's gathering, he's he's speaking to this massive group of people. He's just wowed them with miracles, and he's preaching, he's preaching. They're not getting it, um, and and he starts to get into an argument with them. They want bread. He's like, you don't really need bread, you need me. And they're like, no, no, but we really want bread. And he finally he gets so flustered that he goes, look. If you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And they're all like, whoa. That dude just went off the cliff. Peace. Like, and they, they all leave. It's like thousands of people. They all just take off. And Jesus, in this beautiful moment of vulnerability, he turns to his disciples. He just had 5,000 plus people following him around, listening to every word he had to say. And now there's 12. And he turns to them and he says, are you guys going to leave too? And Peter doesn't say, no, Jesus, I got this. I know, that, I know that you're just talking about a metaphor for the Lord's Supper, and this is all going to be really clear. Peter didn't get it either. But he looks to Jesus and he says, where else can I go? You alone hold the words of eternal life. He doesn't say, no, no, I get it. I understand everything you said. He's confused. Who wouldn't be? Eat, you have to eat my flesh. Oh, uh, uh, but I ain't doing that. Uh, he's confused. But he says, I don't know where else to go. If that is you this morning, which means that you're clinging to Jesus, but you've got doubts, and you're wondering, is that okay? If that is you, give thanks to God, because he is at work in your life. That is not from you. But see, others of us, though, we, our presumption is found in that we think we can hold to some propositions. I hold these things about Jesus. I can profess the Apostles' Creed great. But then our lives are untouched. It's like it just doesn't matter. If that is the case, John would ask, do you really believe those propositions or not? Because the same spirit that em- enables faith is the spirit that empowers love. And so if your life lacks love, but you have all of this knowledge, maybe you don't really have the knowledge. That same spirit that enables that faith empowers love, the love that lays down our life to seek the flourishing of others instead of using them. If that isn't present in your life, I'm not saying it's not perfect in your life, I'm saying if it's not present in your life, then maybe the spirit isn't either. So that's where this confidence comes from. Now let's look at what this confidence accomplishes in us. And the first thing that it does is it removes fear. Look down at verses 18 and 19. John says, There's no fear in love. Perfect love instead casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now stop there, because what is he talking about? We need to understand that John is not talking about fear in general. Okay? Um, If I'm hiking and I come across a bear, I'm not... Worried I'm going to get punished. I'm worried I'm going to get eaten. Like, it's not the same thing, okay? So he's not talking about fear in general. He's talking about the fear that comes with being in the presence of God. Here's what he means. Fear makes us self-protective. It's a natural response, right? When you're afraid... You put your guard up. It's what we do. 
It's what we do ever since Genesis 3, and we've been doing it for so long we've made an art form out of it. Fear tells us we have to care for ourselves, that we have to look out for number one. Fear is the basis of the lie that created humanity's fall. God doesn't love you. He's not going to care for you. Uh, he, he doesn't want what's good for you. He's trying to use you. He's lying to you. He's holding you back, right? And that fear drives us to protect ourselves even from him. We don't believe we can trust him. Therefore, we have to get for ourselves. Okay? Now, here's what John is saying. The love of God in Jesus actually removes that so that we can stop constantly trying to get for ourselves and actually love others. But listen, because here's, where, here's the important part. John says that there's a necessary order to this. Look down at verse 19. He says, we love because he first loved us. Here's why this matters. We can begin to believe when we see a lack of love in our lives, when we, when we see our sin, in other words, that what we need to do more than anything else is get it together. Right? Figure it out and get it done. And so we try to change by basically reinforcing the problem. Self-protecting, right? I'm lacking in love. If I'm lacking in love, God's going to judge me. So therefore, I need to figure out how to get more love, which is really, I have to protect myself from the judging God. You see how that works? I've got to get this right. But then, and you know this, we don't actually change. And that is because the change wasn't based in the gospel. Okay, So if this is new to you, what I just said is that you cannot change by just gritting your teeth and whiting your knuckles. Like you can't make that right. So what I'm about to say is what actual change looks like in the gospel. So if you've never heard this, please listen in real close. Gospel change is this. When, when we don't just look at what we're doing, but why we're doing it. So maybe you're not generous with your money and you're like... Uh, and so gospel change would look like this. I'm not generous with my money because I believe that I will be satisfied that my life will matter only if I can be a mogul or at least live the good life. And so what we do, instead of just going, okay, well, I'll just give this $5 away. I'm generous. I bought someone a kid's meal. Like, instead, we repent and we turn again to Jesus to confess that he is the only Savior He's the only one who will truly satisfy us, not our money. And that there will never be enough riches to satisfy a hunger that, that isn't there because you lack stuff, but because you lack God. And we, then we allow that truth to remove our fear that we need to get for ourselves. Or maybe it's something more like this. I, I, keep, I can't stop looking at pornography because I'm willing to buy into the illusion that I'm desired and adequate for these women or men. So instead, we repent and we turn again to Jesus to confess that he is the only one who desired me unto death and loves me not with the illusion that I'm not inadequate, but in the midst of every one of my inadequacies. And then I'm able to move into relationships with courage. You see, we love only because he first loved us. Because if anything is based out of our just effort to love and not out of him first loving us, then it's not actually love. It's self-regard. That's not love. 
If it's not because he first loved us, then our love is simply a veiled form of using others to help us avoid or fix our brokenness. So that confidence removes our fear, but it also allows us to give ourselves. Look at verses 20 and 21. Basically what he's saying is this. You can't say you love God while you hate other Christians. Okay? In fact, to not love other Christians is to disobey the God that you say you're loving. Okay? Now there's two aspects of this I want to hit. The first is the statement, uh, is, is, is this is that this statement is based on the notion that we relate to persons, and God is a person. In other words, what I mean by that is this. If you think you have relational struggles with people, but you don't have any with God, you are fooling yourself. We relate to persons, and God is a person. If you struggle with intimacy with others, but you think you're really intimate with God, my my guess would be you probably aren't, because intimacy is with persons, and God is a person. The second thing is kind of a logical train, so follow me. He says, if you love God, and that love comes from the Spirit in you, then God is in you. And if God is in you, and God is love, then you will be loving others. Okay? Does that make sense? So logically, if you claim that God is in you, but you can't even bring yourself to love other Christians, notice he lowers the bar. Did you notice that? He's not saying, if you don't have love for the most, like, really unlovable people you can ever imagine. Maybe that is Christians. I don't know. But he's saying, look, if you can't even, if you can't even factor that into the church, this little group of people that you're with, better yet, the world at large, he lowers the bar. And John says, you're a liar. Whoa. Right? That's harsh, isn't it? I know it is, but um, John says it, not me. Uh, John is saying that the normal life of the Christian, the normal life for someone who claims to be a Christian, should be loving at least other Christians. At least. Okay? Now, that leads me to response and command. Last point. Here's the thing that John is saying. This confidence of God's care in, for us in Jesus leads us to love others. And this love is both a response and a command. It's both a response and a command. And we need to hold the two of them together. Okay? Here's what I mean. On the one hand, we need to see that the normative life for a Christian is one of self-giving, not self-protecting. That's the normative life. Self-giving, not self-protecting. The gospel frees us for this self-forgetfulness because it assures us that everything we think we need has already been provided for us in Jesus. But on the other hand, we need to see that this is not optional to the Christian. Let me say that again, because we will fall off the horse on one side or the other, right? It's totally a response, which means it's optional until I feel like God is loving me. Or it's totally a command, which means I'm just going to grit my teeth and make myself do it. He says it's both. So on the other hand, we need to see that this is not optional to the Christian, because to say no to this is to say I don't really want to be like Jesus. Nah. Jesus, I I know what you did, but, you know, I'm just pretty much, I'm good with your stuff. As long as you give me the goods, I'm fine. I don't really need you. We want his benefits, we don't want him. So let me get specific. This tells us that there is no such thing as a consumer Christian. No such thing. 
You know what I mean? That is the perspective that we as Christians are here. And when I say here, I mean here. In here. In this place. That we are here to get served. To get our fill. And that if we aren't getting served, if we aren't getting our fill, if something's not meeting our expectations, we move on. We move on to the next place where we can consume. It's like a spiritual marketplace. Listen to me. That is not Christian. The goal of God's love for us in Jesus, the end, the telos, is to make us like Jesus. Giving ourselves to see others flourish. And so if you approach the world, no, no, no. Let me narrow it down. Let me narrow it to where John narrows it. If you approach the church with the attitude of, I will help, but not if it costs me. I will serve others, but only if I get benefit or am not made to feel uncomfortable or only in my free time as long as it doesn't touch my lifestyle or ask too much of me. Then you need to understand that right now, the gospel is not operative for you. It's just not operative. Your love is suddenly conditioned on what you can get or on what it will cost and not on how you've been loved in Jesus. Jesus' command to love is not a command to niceness. Jesus said that love is shown in washing feet, not clean feet, nasty feet, nasty Shown in washing feet, taking a low position, serving so that others can flourish. Listen, I know that giving your time, giving your talents, giving your treasure to see others flourish is hard. But here's the good news. The gospel provides for it. That's why this is also a response. You will never be free to love this way if you feel like you have to perform to get God's love for you. Or you have to perform to, get, to take care of your needs. But if you believe that God has already provided for you in Jesus, that he has loved you first, not when you were looking for it, before you ever even imagined it, then you really can give yourself away. So God has actually commanded something that he has provided for in the gospel. So friends, our, com- our confidence is ultimately found not in what we've done, but by what the Spirit is doing in us. And that work creates faith. That work moves us to love. That work frees us from fear. That work enables us to love others. And that is why the confidence of the Christian is found ultimately in what God has done and in what God is doing in us. Would you pray with me? God, in the midst of this, we acknowledge that uh, this is a hard thing to hear. But you are good. And so we praise you for your goodness and ask that you would perfect your love in us, that you would bring it to its conclusion, that you would make us more like Jesus. Some of us in this room, though, are stuck in presumption, not confidence. That our confidence is still, we're trying to find our confidence in what we do. And we we can confess even right now that as we do that, we are restless. We, we, we can't seem to stop. We're critical because of that. And we need your grace to come in and show us that you loved us first. Others of us, Lord, our presumption is found in the fact that we can believe a lot of stuff, but it just, it's not really making an impact in our lives. And we need you 
to come and to show us your grace and to love us first. Lord, would you make Holy Cross into a congregation full of confidence, not in us, but in the perfect work of our Savior. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.